Well, it seems every week ride hailing is in the news. More calls to bring it to B.C. This week we've been talking about a petition asking the B.C. government to get rid of the requirement for a Class 4 license for people who want to become drivers with companies like Uber and Lyft. One of the arguments against it is often the argument that it causes congestion, that it puts many more vehicles on the roads. But how true is that statement. Well, Laura Bliss is with a company, City Lab, but the West Coast Bureau Chief with City Lab, which has published a piece about this, taking a look at some new numbers when it comes to the number of vehicles added to the roads when we have ride hailing. And uh, Laura Bliss joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us to talk about this, because it is one of those questions that, depending on who you ask, you tend to get a bit of a different answer. Uh, so take, a, take us through what you've written about and the numbers uh, that, that you talk about in this piece, or where do they come from? Sure, absolutely. Um, so it's been um, a question that researchers and, and kind of city regulators around the world actually have been um, trying to get at for a number of years, really since the arrival of, of Uber and Lyft um, on, on mass, um, and uh, trying trying to sort of use different data sources and you know counting vehicles and um, sort of going about a roundabout way to to try to measure the impact on traffic and car counts and and you know wait times in traffic. Um, and the reason it's been difficult is that um, historically Uber and Lyft have been pretty reticent to um, share data, right? Because it's, it's been considered pretty proprietary and, and, you know, important to them to keep it private. Um, but this study that I wrote about last week that we're talking about now um, is actually something that Uber and Lyft put out themselves. Um, it's kind of an analysis that they conducted um, to be able to, to put out there to, to contribute to, <laughs> uh, you know, regulatory conversations a little bit more productively. And it does, in, in effect, um, essentially acknowledge that they have had very significant um, traffic impacts um, in a number of, of major U.S. cities. And, and major traffic impacts, but they also tend to or seem to be making the argument that when you look at places like New York City and places where not where it's got a, a lower level of people that own their own vehicles, uh, saying that, yes, the numbers would look like they're adding huge numbers to the to the vehicles on the road, but saying that they're not actually causing they're not actually uh, causing this huge amount of congestion that some people would say. Um. Right. So I think I think the, the way that Uber and Lyft have framed the analysis um, for, you know, their benefit is is to say that, you know, while so just for example, right, I mean, New York wasn't actually included um, and, and it's estimated that Uber and Lyft have had a, a, probably the, the biggest impact um, in adding cars and vehicle miles to the road in that city out of any other. But just for example, in San Francisco County, Uber and Lyft make up as much as 13.4% of all vehicle miles traveled to so every, you know, all miles on the road um, on, on a sort of given day of the month um, as of last September. In Boston, it was 8%. Um, in Washington, D.C., it's a little over 7%. Um, and so, you know, those are percentages out of the entire um, pie, right, of vehicle miles on, on the road on any given day. And so, that's still a minority, of course, right? The vast majority of, of all those vehicle miles out there are private vehicles, people just driving themselves to work or to school or wherever it may be. 
And, you know, Uber and Lyft want to say, kind of point out, like, look, you know, it's, it's not so bad. But considering the fact that these services have only been around, you know, roughly, really less than 10 years, um, those are pretty significant numbers. Um, and, you know, I think I think cities and, and researchers and just regular folks, you know, been, who've been sitting in traffic will be interested to know um, that that these services do actually have quite an impact Oh, it, for sure. They, they do for sure. Uh, one of the other the other um, points that often gets raised or questioned is if you're talking about an Uber or Lyft driver, that is it is it somebody who's driving around anyway and then picks up somebody and offers them a ride or are they cars that are that are on demand and somebody and they just turn on the app when somebody wants to get a vehicle or when when there's demand for that and I guess that adds to it in that uh, different from a, a taxi that would be on the roads anyway um, does did, did these numbers look at that whether or not it's adding to the congestion or it's using cars that are already on the road um, so it's a great question uh, I think you're kind of asking there's, there's a couple questions I think wrapped into it so so I'll, I'll just address two of them so so one thing is this question of um what taxi drivers often call deadheading which is like you know all the miles that um a taxi or an uber or lyft driver will be putting on the road in between trips right so when they're just kind of traveling around waiting for a passenger to pop up on their um, platform um and uber and lyft actually said that um, on average between the six major studies that they cities that they looked at which by the way were boston chicago la san francisco and Washington, D.C., and Seattle, um, that between 54 and 62 percent of all the miles that Uber and Lyft were putting on the road, on average, in those cities had a rider in the backseat, which suggests that almost 50 percent of the miles, right, um, are being put on the road without actually getting a passenger to and fro. So that's pretty striking, right? considering all those, those other numbers we talked about, big impacts. And then secondarily, right, this other question about, okay, well, you know, maybe Uber and Lyft have this um, big share of vehicles on the road, but, but isn't it possible that, you know, they were just taking, you know, someone else who might have otherwise taken their car to work, maybe they just kind of, you know, displaced them. Um, they do not get into that question of, of, you know, what researchers would call like mode shift, right? Like how many people did they just take out of their cars? How many people did they take off the bus? How many people would have walked or biked rather than take Uber and Lyft? They did not get into that, um, those questions in this particular analysis, but other researchers have, and it really varies. The impact really varies depending on what kind of city you're looking at. But um, by and large in Big cities like New York or San Francisco or Washington, D.C., where public transit is really robust and where people have been relying on it, um, Uber and Lyft actually tend to have the biggest impact um, because they're more likely to be replacing trips that folks would have taken on the bus or train or walk or bike um, (laughs) rather than, right, kind of um, replacing um, a little bit more, you know, neutrally. Um, trips in private cars, if that makes sense. Oh, it does totally. Um, and, and it seems like that's yeah. a big piece of information that's left out of this, because that is really the question I think a lot of people have is if you right. didn't, if you don't have Uber or you didn't have access to that Uber or Lyft vehicle, how would you have gotten from point A to point B? Totally. Yeah. It's a question that they do not uh, bring to the fore in this analysis, um, because they're actually trying to make the point in this study that, that Uber and Lyft 
do not have um, such a big impact compared to private cars. And while that's true, you know, numbers like 13%, 7%, 8%, that's still a lot, right? And that's still a lot of people who are potentially being, you know, drawn away um, from other modes that are less, you know, uh, impactful to, to traffic levels like public transit, like biking, like walking. And you make a point, too, and they talk about this also, the, the fact that they, they were nowhere not that long ago, and that's the amount that they are now impacting or that they are now present in these major cities in a very short period of time. That's right. Yeah, right. I mean, Uber and Lyft have really only been, um, you know, in, in all of these major cities for the last, I mean, what is it, you know, seven seven or eight years. Um, so that's <laughs> pretty dramatic growth. Um, and I know, you know, Vancouver, I know, is now looking at this question of, of um, bringing um, Uber and Lyft to town. And, and, and I want to add, too, right, like Uber and Lyft have also had incredible um, you know, benefits to some cities, right, um, serving neighborhoods that didn't have public transit access or getting people to work, you know, where we lived in neighborhoods where taxis, traditional taxis wouldn't come. And that's important to recognize, too. And, and you know, these are conveniences that, that many of us who live in cities you know, with them really enjoy and benefit from um, in certain respects. But um, there's this other question, right, about what it does to overall traffic, what it does to public transit, um, what it does to carbon emissions in the air. And I know Vancouver has had um, really remarkable success um, in recent years and seeing people, more and more people taking public transit, which is actually the reverse trend line in most cities in America. Most cities are seeing transit ridership go down and it might be partly because of ride hailing. So um, I know this is a question that the city is looking at really carefully right now. Um, and I think these numbers um, could potentially help. All right. Well, we will leave it there, but they are uh, interesting numbers for sure. And uh, an interesting look at a closer look at congestion and, and the number of people using uh, these services. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about them today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, there has been another call for the decriminalization of drugs, a group calling it an essential step to end the overdose crisis in B.C. This latest call comes from the nurses and nurse practitioners of B.C. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Tess Croker, a full-time nurse and also a spokesperson for this group. Tess, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, Tess, talk a little bit, if you can. This is a, a call, uh, which we've heard before, uh, another call to decriminalize drugs. What, what led to your group uh, calling for this, saying that this is an essential step? Well, <clears throat> a little bit of time ago, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's the public health officer, submitted a, a, a voluminous report to government for the call of uh, decriminalization for people who use drugs and that report was rejected and so as nurses who advocate for the health and safety of our patients we realized that the criminal element that's associated with substance use is probably the leading barrier we've made a lot of progress in being able to establish safe consumption sites and drug checking services but this is this is something that really keeps people out of care and seeking care. And so they remain a, a huge risk by not being able to access care. So if we decriminalized it or if it was decriminalized, do you think, would that lead to, would there be a direct connection then to people being able to get the care and the help that they need? 
I think that it absolutely would because there's so much stigma that's associated with the criminal element of it. And so people are hesitant to access services for fear of prosecution, uh, for fear of judgment. You know, there are people that, that have families that, you know, would be worried about losing their children if they, if they make their, their drug use known. And so by removing that element, what it does is it really opens the door for people to have a little bit more confidence in accessing services that they require. Right now, there's, there's the research in the state that says that people who use drugs, only 25% access services because of the fear of, of the criminal prosecution element. And is it the fear then that, um, that you would be arrested or that you would be charged when you were, when you were actually in the process of accessing help or care? Yes, that's that's definitely one of the fears, but it's also it's also the stigma that's associated with with drug use, and so um, stigmatization of drug use was actually used as a way of preventing drug use. You know, where you know it was the the war on drugs and and the, the risk of prosecution, and this is your brain on drugs, and all of those ads. But we find that 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 actually works really against. You know, this is a a health issue that people establish, um, you know, an encounter for various reasons. This is about blaming the victims. And so what it is, is it's a way to, to, to soften and to understand why people end up using drugs and becoming dependent on drugs um, and just changing all of the ideas that we, that we have about people who use drugs. And do you think, would it, would it take a while, though, to, to get rid of the stigma of that, too? I mean, decriminalization sounds like it would be a, a good step. But would there still, I would imagine there would still be some stigma attached to it. It would take a while to get rid of that. Well, there, absolutely. This is, this is something that is going to take years to, to change. You know, and it comes with, with understanding it. It comes with educating the public. In health services, we still see... Uh, healthcare practitioners um, that are, that stigmatize people who use drugs. You know, they they have their own unique experiences with people that are using drugs. Sometimes it's not not the most pleasant experience for health practitioners, but it's it's obviously not the most positive experience for people using drugs either. And so, it really is a a way of um, you know beginning by changing. Uh, access. Really what we're talking about now is because of the, the, the issue of people hiding their drug use, uh, having fear of judgment, using alone, they're dying. And this is really why we're, we're taking such a, an assertive approach. We just need to provide a way for people to start accessing care first. And then there's multiple other initiatives that we can do to start changing attitudes and, and bias and judgment. And do you think, would this lead to, or would this be the first step then in leading to taking it even further to granting, say, a safe supply of drugs? That's definitely part of part of the process. Right now, there, and a lot of people aren't aware, there's, there's numerous, you know, this isn't blaming the government. The government is working very hard to try and eliminate, um, you know, the amount of deaths that are occurring right now. There's uh, a handout of naloxone kits and education around that. There's currently supervised consumption sites. And so the, the decriminalized sanctions apply to those specific sites within a very, very tight sort of, you know, uh, 250-meter kind of, kind of area. Um, there's drug checking services. There's rapid access to clinics for opiate agonist treatment. 
So there's a lot of things that are actually occurring, but what we've discovered is because of this criminal element, the fact that you could get charged and convicted for for holding drugs for your own personal use is really a barrier that that has so much fallout that we really need to start start actively trying to change. Right. And is there a fear, though, at all that, that by by doing that, by kind of normalizing it, that it, it becomes accepted when really should the goal not still be to, to help people not do drugs at all? Well, that's that's definitely part of it. The, the, the education around it is that, um, you know, this is not a not a um, acceptance of drug use and, you know, a changing of our standard. And that's, that's the, I think, the fear around this conversation. Uh, the people that are producing and trafficking drugs are still held to the fullest extent of the law. What we're talking about is recognizing that this is a health issue for people, that people come by this, um, you know, this disorder, sometimes secondarily because of a of a medical issue that's not managed properly or they develop substances or substance use issues because they're trying to manage a chronic pain issue, for example. We're also talking about uh, people that are using recreationally um, and, and, you know, are, are at risk because of, you know, one tainted supply. And so we're, what we're trying to do is to, is to just create a, a bit, bit of a different culture around it. Um, the, the, the war on drugs, we know it doesn't work. Um, in spite of the, the initiatives that are, have been occurring, like the naloxone kits, like the supervised consumption sites, the overdose deaths remain the same. And so this is why we have to, to look at um, recognizing the fact that this is a unique and, and huge barrier for us. Uh, there hasn't been uh, really uh, much of an appetite when we talk about our politicians. Uh, the public safety minister uh, in BC uh, hasn't really talked about any interest in doing this. Uh, on so on a provincial level or on a federal level, what do you do next uh, as a group then, in, as far as calling for this? Well, really, the next step is that there there is some opportunity to start looking uh, at a policy level issue. And so where that comes into play is, is by potentially amending the Police Act or creating some, some new language around um, the, the way that um, police are engaging with people who you know, are in possession. Um, so federally, no, it, it is a challenge. And, and Dr., um, Dr. Henry's report talks about that extensively. So it's a really great document um, that explains the options that we have as far as amendments. Um, Vancouver Police Department is actually doing doing some things that um, they're able to use a level of discretion, um, but they're vulnerable unless government is standing behind them on their change. So that's why we're having this conversation. All right. Well, Tess, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk more about this uh, and about the call from uh, from the group. Uh, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. And we really appreciate you having us. Thank you so much. Well, there have uh, certainly been some high-profile stories in the news as of late, whether talking about uh, the three murders in B.C. and the suspects uh, that were found deceased 
in Manitoba or talking about a case much closer to home, this in Langley. And if you've been following along this story, it's absolutely heartbreaking talking about the 14-year-old boy who died at a Langley skate park and died in part because people who saw him reacting to a drug overdose did nothing other than make a recording of it and share the recording. They didn't call 911. They didn't do anything to help. Uh, That has led the father of that boy calling for charges. He wants to see those teens prosecuted if they can be found. But there have also been questions about the timeline, about how the information in that case was given to the public. And Cash Heed, who is a former police chief in West Vancouver and uh, wears several other hats, has talked about this. And he joins us on the line right now to talk a little bit more about that information and the release of it. Cash Heed, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. My pleasure. What were your concerns or are your concerns about how things unfolded with the public learning about this? Well, not only this uh, very tragic uh, recent incident, but certainly the one you made reference to earlier in northern British Columbia. We have uh, two uh, very sad and tragic incidents that occurred. We had very, very little information at the outset that came out. We had social media that was sharing some knowledge of the incident, yet we had law enforcement authorities really refusing to tell us or give us some details of what occurred until quite some time later. Now, these are agencies that are are public uh, bodies accountable to the public. The public's not interested in those intricate investigative details. However, when you come out with the information with respect to this, you've got to be able to give some credible information to the public, especially, Jill, when you're appealing for them to come forward with information. How in the world do we expect people to comfortably come forward with credible information when, in fact, you're sharing a very little. It's like a one-way street. There's no communication here back and forth. And you, you, they do not utilize the media, in my humble opinion, strategically good enough, especially after they've hired so many former media uh, personalities or, or uh, representatives in their organizations, they are actually just looking for that one side of it. And that's very disturbing, very telling. It's a trend we've noticed that has excelled over the last three years. Uh, in the case of the the three murders in BC, one of the criticism was when they put out those still photos of the suspects. And keep in mind, this was before uh, we had no idea where they were. That when they first announced that actually these aren't missing people, these are now suspects. They're considered armed and dangerous, and and like you said, relying on the public to to bring that information. Uh, when they released those still photos, but not the video, do you think that was a mistake? Absolutely. They, matter of fact, the timing of releasing. The information with respect to that incident up north is is very concerning because, Jill, you'll recall that these suspects made their way from British Columbia all the way to Manitoba and went through a quasi-law enforcement roadblock without being detected. We don't know uh, if there would have been a different approach if, in fact, that information had been shared. So when you have such vital information and you're depending on Uh, the other eyes and ears that are out there uh, to give you information. You have to, Jill, in the first instance, get that information out to the public. And we saw the fact when you hold back that information, thinking that, you know, it's vital to your case, you don't want to get that out there right now. And they use this line of they didn't want to really alarm the community. Uh, It's a mistake, in my opinion.
because it, it does seem like if you are looking for suspects, seeing a, a still frame of somebody is much different than seeing somebody move and seeing a video in that if you're asking people to be on the lookout. Absolutely. Absolutely. As much information as you can get, credible information, especially when you have a reasonable uh, suspicion that these are your suspects or there's something untoward here, get that information out, Jill. Get it out as quickly as you can. We've kind of swung the pendulum the other way. You recall years ago, and you've been involved in the media for so many years, that the information coming from law enforcement agencies and other bureaucracies was uh, readily available and given to the media, using the media as a conduit to get that information to the public. The pendulum's gone the other way where they're internalizing so much information now that it's all getting out or most of it's getting out on social media before they actually react to the request from media. Oh, and, and that's very true. And this was an example of that as well, even in that we heard from it was Australian police that said how the people were killed. That wasn't information that was released in B.C. And we often see that, and even surveillance video that police don't release. But oftentimes uh, the media will release it or somebody, a civilian will release it on social media. And and to use the argument that it that it somehow tampers with the case really seems weak because it, I can't think of weak. any example where, where that has ruined a case. Very weak. You go back uh, to even the unfortunate incident with the Paul Pritchard video, the Robert Jakansky incident at the airport, the uh, 23 second video that Pritchard had, uh, look what happened in that, uh, that particular set of circumstances and the RCMP media being involved and not correcting the information. So it goes back many, many years, but I've noticed over the last three years, uh, matter of fact, some of the information that I'm uh, privy to uh, through some channels uh, that I have and the uh, statements that are made to media are almost an outright deception uh, on behalf of these enforcement agencies. Which, which I suppose really doesn't help anybody. Um, this latest case in Langley, uh, there have been some criticism of that as well in the timeline of, of the release of the information. And again, uh, talking about it because it is a case where the RCMP are asking people to give them information to help them find the people involved here. Well, not only here, and this is very, very tragic, you know, very, very sad set of circumstances uh, with respect to what happened here. Even the timing of when they came out with some of the information on it. Initially, uh, we heard that the IIO was involved, and then when the Independent Investigation Office is involved, there's uh, some conduct by the uh, police that's being looked at by this uh, unit. Uh, you have to question what was going on here, and we have very little information, so a lot of assumptions were being made here. Uh, you had the timing of when, in fact, they came out. I think it was 11 at night where they actually made a statement uh, with respect to what's going on. And, you know, again, uh, the public's not looking for that holdback information that's going to be critical to your investigation and locating the suspects, but the public has a right because they are public bodies, the RCMP and the other agencies, uh, to know some of the details of what's going on. We're not asking uh, to, uh, to uh, break privacy laws here, but we're asking you to interpret those privacy laws correctly so, in fact, you can understand what information you can get out. My, my understanding is uh, they shroud themselves in secrecy. Uh, they really don't give out that information unless the media, and the media needs to be more and more assertive in their approach to trying to get the information. And they were very assertive in their approach to get that information initially on what occurred in northern British Columbia. And I listened to that news conference, and I was, I was uh, very, very uh, impressed with 
how assertive the media was. And halfway through that media conference, Jill, there was a change in attitude from the RCMP, realizing that they were no longer in control and can assert their own authority on what information they're giving out. Well, it's an interesting, interesting topic and way of looking at it. We're out of time, so we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Time to shift gears now a little bit. We're going to talk about the upcoming federal election, but elections in general as well and how your personal information is used. And if you are concerned at all about where your information goes, uh, who knows about your information, and uh, what is happening with that as things change and become more digital and uh, more and more companies and such get involved. Well, Colin Bennett is a professor of political science at the University of Victoria and has written about this issue. He joins us on the line now. Colin, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Good morning. Good morning. What do you think should be the key concern as, as Canadians get ready for the next federal election when it comes to voter information and even voter surveillance? Well, the problem is that <clears throat> our, our political parties and other actors who uh, encourage us to vote and, uh, and have a legitimate democratic duty to educate us about, about their policies and so on, are not covered by our privacy laws. And so what that means is that individuals really don't have much information about how information is being used in in campaigns. And so there needs to be far more transparency. And this whole issue has reached uh, public consciousness and the headlines as a result of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. That company no longer exists, but the issues are still very, very um, prominent in public consciousness. And so uh, there's been a debate over the last couple of years about what to do about this. And going forward into the election, I think there's going to be a lot of attention to how personal data is being used on social media um, and how individuals are getting um, communications through various means, through email, through text, etc., by candidates and by political parties, um, which they may not want, and they may be asking questions about, well, how did they get my name? How did they get my cell phone? How did they get my email address? Those questions are going to be very prominent in the federal election. And when people do have those questions, which I'm sure they do, even if you're noticing on a social media feed that you're getting particular ads or particular stories funneled to you, if people do have that question about where did they get this information, is it possible for people to find out? Well, not really. That's the problem. Um, <clears throat> political part. And if you if you were getting those that information, if you're getting that that marketing, say from a company, then yes, you'd have some rights. You'd have some rights under our privacy law to ask the company where did you get my information and to access it and to delete it if you didn't want them to be processing it. But our political parties are essentially exempt from. Uh, those, those privacy rules. They're also exempt from the do not call rules that are administered by the uh, CRTC. So, for example, um, your listeners might be familiar with the fact that you can put your number on a do not call list. Um, political parties are not, um, are not obliged to check their lists against that do not call list. And so what that means is that there can be all kinds of communications from from political parties from candidates, often from candidates that you may not, may never want to support, um, and suspicions about where that information is coming from. So at the moment, there's a regulatory gap. 
uh, the political parties have generally resisted uh, regulation in this area, um, but um, we're hopeful that at least after the election uh, there'll be something done about it. And, and is it an issue as well, the fact that not only are these campaigns, are they targeting people or getting that information and then deciding who they're going to, to target with this? In, in a lot of cases, or there's not really any uh, rules around whether or not the information is true. That's right. And so uh, the thing that the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, uh, raised was how this whole issue about the processing of personal data by political parties and candidates in, in all countries and also within the complex ecosystem of social media, um, how that's really related to the question of misinformation, fake news, propaganda, and how precise segments of the electorate might be targeted by, by ads that are completely secretive, non-transparent, and which are one untrue. Um, we've taken some steps uh, in this country through uh, the Elections Modernization Act to try to get more transparency for, for election advertising. Um, so that there's there's more information for, for voters and for our politicians about who's sponsoring ads, who's paying for it, and so on. Um, but there's some uh, suspicion that that's not going to be enough and that that kind of misinformation can still uh, enter into um, people's news feeds on Facebook or their Twitter feeds, or they may be seeing it through, through uh, robocalling and robotexting and other mechanisms like that. And how concerned do you think people should be as well on, I, I mean, you know, not that long ago, if people suggested that their phones were listening to them, they might be considered conspiracy theorists, whereas now you say something in a conversation and an ad pops up on your phone five minutes later. How concerned should we be about that surveillance, be it our phones, our email, what websites that we've gone to and that information being used by we don't even know who? Well, you know, individuals' responses to this are going to vary depending on how how they view privacy and how they feel about having their personal information monitored in that way. Uh, but it's more of a social question. It's more of a political question, a question about our democracy. Um, it's not just about privacy and intrusiveness. It is about that. But it's also about how accurate information enters our political discourse, our public discourse. Um, and unless you have transparency about who is saying what, to whom, when, how, it's very difficult to actually counter that with accurate information. So the result of this uh, scandal, which has tended to be symbolized by this word Cambridge Analytica, in which presumably all of your uh, listeners would have heard of, um, means that there's now a, a, an international conversation about how elections should be conducted and how new technologies could be used for good rather than for uh, misinformation and propaganda and for uh, intrusive messaging, which um, uh, will violate the privacy of individuals. And do you think that it's possible that we get to a place or is it needed that there's some regulation when it comes to social media? Because right now it is the Wild West. Anybody can say anything. Uh, does there need to be uh, regulation about putting fake, fake information, putting misinformation out there? Well, well, that's that's one question, and one of the um, uh, that's going to vary country to country, depending on rules about freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Uh, that freedom is constitutionally protected in countries like Canada and elsewhere. 
Uh, the approach so far is to insist on transparency so that you can see who is paying for the ad um, and, and, and so that it can be counted. Um, but but there's, a, there's a larger issue here concerning the political process and our political actors um, who um, you know, need to take a hard look about how they're using these new, new technologies in order to reach voters. Um, and so there needs to be far more transparency um, concerning our political parties in Canada. In most countries of the world, political parties are covered by privacy law, and therefore individuals have some rights to um, understand how personal data is being processed by those parties. But that's not the case in Canada so far, um, and I and others are hoping to change that. And is it an issue that, that people are still able to be anonymous, be it there could be a Twitter account that's, that looks like one thing and it could very well uh, be somebody who's a member or, or, or for a political party, but that's not made aware or that's oh, not absolutely. shown? No, I, I, absolutely. There's, there's, there's all kinds of phony, phony accounts out there. There's all kind of phony messaging. There's a lot of messaging that, 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 that um, <clears throat> you know, behind which there's not necessarily an individual, but it's automatic, auto, automatically uh, transmitted as a result of automated bots. Uh, that's, we're going to see a lot of that in the, in the uh, upcoming election. Um, and um, so Canada, I think, is in a, is in a critical position here um, to, to try and address some of these questions that were raised in 2016, principally in the a U.S. election, but also in the Brexit referendum in the U.K., and to see whether as a parliamentary democracy, very different from the environment of the United States, we can get a handle on how uh, these new technologies can be harnessed for, you know, good communication, transparent communication, for, for public discourse and public deliberation rather than for propaganda and misinformation. All right. Well, it will be an interesting one uh, to watch as we get closer to the election, for sure. Uh, Colin Bennett, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Well, did you take the opportunity to have your say when it comes to BC Ferries and the future of BC Ferries? If so, you are part of the group of more than 10,000 BC Ferries customers who took part, uh, all looking at the future of the ferry fleet. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this and what people are saying and what people say they would like to see in the future is Tessa Humphreys, Manager of Communications at BC Ferries Services. Tessa, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, Talk a bit. So this was a process to get the public engaged. You put the call out. Was it people so people could come forward and talk about anything they wanted or talk about things they wanted to see with BC Ferries? Sure. So earlier this year, we ran uh, an engagement with our customers about um, our new major vessels. So these are at least four vessels that we're going to build to replace um, four of the vessels we currently have that run on the Metro Vancouver to Vancouver Island route. So these are some of our larger vessels. So it was really important to us that we get out and, and we talk to our customers about what they'd like to see on the vessels, what they need, if there's anything we can do to improve their travel experience with us. So we did. We ran an engagement where we had um, an online component. We had some uh, onboard sessions on the ships where we could talk to people face-to-face. And then we also ran some community workshops to talk about everything from accessibility, um, pet spaces, outdoor spaces, as well as, um, you know, important considerations like sustainability and and future flexibility for these ships that are going to serve generations to come. And what did you hear from people? We were really excited about how many customers took part, 
um, and how many people responded. We, we heard about, um, you know, a lot of a lot of our customers were looking for improved amenities if they're traveling with pets. Um, a lot were lo- asking about, you know, quiet spaces, spaces away from technology to escape noise. Um, but and then we also had people who were looking for, you know, more charging stations and more outlets. Um, and then also a, a variety of customers who were asking about, um, you know, more more space for bikes and and if they're traveling with um, with a bike, more storage and things like that. Uh, you mentioned the pet spaces, and I think if you talk to anybody that has traveled with a pet, especially now with the stricter rules of staying in vehicles, uh, this pet spaces are awful. You know, Jill, I'm a dog owner, and I, I travel with my dog all the time. And and we did. We certainly heard about customers looking for for more amenities for um, their their pets when they're on board. Um, be that you know things like even just having a vending machine. And and we certainly understand that customers traveling with their pets, um, they have some some needs that they're looking for. So so we wanted to make sure we asked about that, and and we're taking that feedback now. We're taking it back to our team, and we're seeing where possible we can incorporate into the design requirements. Uh, Would there be any discussion or were there any uh, people that were suggesting as well the idea of being allowed to take pets into the outdoor spaces on some of the decks or part of the deck? That was actually a question that was asked. And um, in the report, if, um, you know, you go through the report and you look back, it's about 50-50. There was a question asked about whether people or whether our customers would be comfortable with pets having, um, being up on the outdoor spaces. And and to be honest, it was about a 50-50 response. So so we certainly wanted to ask that question because it is feedback we receive um, from many customers. But, but, you know, like I said, I'm a dog owner. I can certainly appreciate that when traveling with a pet, it's, it's stressful and, and there are additional, um, you know, requirements needed. And, and so we did want to make sure that we got out there and, and we asked our customers what they'd like to see in those spaces. Uh, talking about uh, food and beverage as well, that was uh, one of the topics. Uh, there's been talk about uh, whether or not alcohol should be allowed or accessible on the BC ferries. Uh, was that part of this as well? Um, yeah, we did ask about, you know, the, the fresh food offerings and, and what customers would like to see. I'm not sure that we had a specific alcohol question, um, but we did. We, we hear a lot from our customers that they'd like to see more more fresh food offerings. And I think that that, that means um, a different thing to different customers. And so we wanted to make sure that we, we asked about what that means to them. Is that vegetarian? Is that vegan? Or is that something else? And certainly, you know, we, we transport 22 million people and passengers a year. So, so everyone has kind of a different opinion about stuff, and, and we wanted to make sure that we reached as many of our customers as possible so that we could get their feedback and incorporate it where possible. Uh, and what about the possibility then of increased costs? Because it's one thing to fill out a survey or to answer questions saying having all of these things would be great, but will that lead then to higher fees or higher costs to ride the ferries and to use the ferries? Sure. So, so we absolutely recognize that fare affordability is a main concern for our customers, and and you know we there are many ways that we can um, reduce upward pressure on fares, and and one of those ways is diversified revenues. So that would be through things like the gift shop and our catering on board. Um, you know, I think that it's important to understand that that these revenue streams help reduce upward press, pressure on fares. But these are all the the acquisition of these ships. It is a major capital expenditure, so it does require the approval of the BC Ferries Commissioner under Section 55. So it is still, it does still re- require approval. It's part of our $3.9 billion capital plan. And um, we are expecting that approval later this year. 
And I don't know if the survey got into or the questions went into this, but was there any talk of, of technology use? And granted, I mean, there is a BC Ferries app, but it's it's basically the same information as the website. Was there any uh, asking of people or discussion about advancing that, to, you know, being able as a walk-on passenger to book online or to book and pay online to, to do it through an app or to do something to make the process more streamlined and more more techni- technology-friendly? Sure. Yeah, there, there was, um, you know, absolutely the Wi-Fi is something we understand is not meeting our customers' expectations, and, and we absolutely recognize that. So so there were a lot of comments around the improvement on the, the Wi-Fi. Um, there were some questions around apps um, in regards to our food and beverage services. So if you would pre-order your food, um, if you would pre-order kind of a, a ticket for the buffet, is that something you would use? Um, so certainly we are looking at technology improvements. Um, we will be launching launching a, a new website later this year that um, will assist in some of these improvements going forward. So, so we did ask around that as well. Um, and, and one of the other considerations that we asked about or that we hear from our customers is our customers are very concerned about the environment and our environmental sustainability. And, and that's something that we're really concerned about as well. So we heard a lot of feedback around that. And we're actually going to go out later this year with another round of engagement specifically around environmental sustainability and future flexibility to continue those conversations. And what does that mean as far as, are you talking about the operating, the running of the actual vessel or, or the things such as packaging and waste and such from on the vessel? Yeah, it's actually everything. We, you know, we did hear around, um, you know, composting and, and that as well. But it is also around the running of the vessels. And, and um, you know, we are dedicated to our environmental sustainability. And each class of ships that we build is cleaner and quieter than the ships that they're replacing. But we recognize that, you know, we, we, we are privileged to live and work in such a pristine environment in coastal British Columbia. And so we recognize that our customers are, are very concerned about the environment. And, and we we are too. And so we do want to carry on those conversations later this year. And at the end of it all as well, I mean, it's great to get feedback from people and people who use the BC ferries, but it also is, it's not like there's another choice for people that if they're not going to take a ferry, they're going to get there somewhere, somehow else, unless they're in a private boat or, or flying. Um, so, so how can people be assured that what the, the, the public engagement is actually going to translate into changes? Sure. So I think it's important to, you know, we do have certain design requirements that these ships will will need, um, and we're we're going to do our best where possible with what we've heard from customers to be able to incorporate it into those design and technical requirements we have for those ships. But just to give you one example, um, you know, we did hear a lot from customers about bikes and bike storage and the need for um, a space to put your bike on board the vessel. So that's already some feedback that we're able to take and, and incorporate into the design requirements. And I think that speaks kind of to the future of transportation and, and how people are getting to the ships and how they're how they're deciding to travel nowadays. There's there's way more people that are traveling on bikes. So we want to make sure that we capture that. And you mentioned as well, so there's going to be a second round of engagement or what what can people expect next? Yeah, so what's next is is later this year, we are going out uh, with a second round of engagement to build on what we heard um, through this first round, as I mentioned, around kind of sustainability and, and future flexibility to better understand how we can build these ships for future generations of travel of travelers while prioritizing the protection of the environment. 
Um, we would not expect to um, enter a, a contract to build these ships until next year, and they would not come into service until around the mid-2020s. But like I said, it's really important to us that we talk to our customers. We transport 22 million people a year. We get an idea. Everyone has a variety of needs around accessibility, families are traveling, pet owners are traveling. So we want to make sure that we capture as much as possible and see how we can improve that travel experience for our customers. All right. Uh, we will leave it there, but uh, wait and hear more what, uh, about what people have to say. Uh, Tessa, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Joe.